the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Mark. Mark is going to write very expeditiously. He is writing with the intent of showing the constant move of Jesus in ministry. In fact, he will use the term, I think in King James it's the word immediately, in the NIV he will use the term at once more than 40 times because Mark is constantly portraying Jesus on the move. Immediately this, at once that, immediately this, at once that. And he shows the constant move of Jesus in ministry. Jesus' ministry wasn't long on earth. In fact, he really only had three years to accomplish all you read about in the Gospel of Mark. Today, Pastor Gary will share how Mark emphasizes the speed at which Jesus moved from place to place, ministry to ministry. He didn't hesitate or wait to see if someone else would pick up the slack. Jesus was all in, all the time. He knew what he had been sent to do, and he did it teaching countless people and changing many perspectives before his ultimate sacrifice for all of us. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Mark, chapter 1, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are considered what is called the synoptic gospels because there are great similarities and great parallels between those three gospels. And then the gospel of John uh, is a little bit different in, in the way it's written and in the way that it communicates the story. But all four taken together give us the broader view of the life and ministry of Jesus. So as we come to the Gospel of Mark, you're going to see similar stories that Matthew wrote about and additional things that Matthew didn't write about. And uh, between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have four different angles, all inspired by the same Holy Spirit, to familiarize ourselves with the life and uh, the ministry of Jesus Christ. So as we look into the Gospel of Mark tonight, this is the shortest uh, Gospel of the four, and it was uh, the earliest written sometime probably around 55 to 63 AD. Nobody knows for sure. But it is likely that it was written uh, in that time period. Some even say maybe f as early as 50 A.D., but it is generally accepted somewhere between 55 and 63 A.D. It was written for the Romans uh, because as you look at the Gospel of Mark, you will notice there are different times that he, he slows it down to explain Jewish terms. So he's writing for an audience and, and during his day in the first century who would not normally have been familiar with Hebrew terminology and, and Jewish things. Uh, even his name, Mark, is really a Roman name. Now he is also referred to 
as uh, John Mark, I'm getting a little ahead of myself with, with my slides, the John part is probably his Hebrew given name, Yohanan. Yohanan means God is gracious or Yahweh is gracious. John Mark, but the Mark part is the Roman uh, name that he bears, Marcus. And uh, so the, his gospel uh, written for Romans, and he is trying to communicate the good news of Jesus to people who otherwise would not necessarily be familiar with it as, as Gentiles. He presents Jesus as a servant. You're going to see throughout the Gospel of Mark how much he emphasizes the servant nature of Jesus, how Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. That's why, if I can just go backwards, that's why in our logo for the Gospel of Mark, uh, the gospel is portrayed as an ox because it is a, an animal of servitude. An ox was a beast of burden. It was one that served uh, in the farming of land. Uh, and this is all taken, by the way, from the fact that when you look into the book of Ezekiel, these different symbols, we used uh, a lion to portray the gospel of Matthew, and uh, now we're using an ox to portray the, uh, the gospel of Mark. That when you look at the uh, book of Ezekiel in chapter 1 and also in Revelation chapter 4, that there's descriptions of the cherubim, which are angels that attend the throne of God, and that when they are described in Ezekiel chapter 1 and Revelation chapter 4, they are described as each having four faces. In fact, I'll just read it to you from um, Ezekiel chapter 1. It says this, verse 10, their faces look like this. Each of the four had the face of a man. And on the right side, each had the face of a lion. And on the left, the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. So what Ezekiel tells us in chapter 1, that's repeated in Revelation chapter 4, that these angelic creatures are four-dimensional, and they have four faces. One is the face of a man, the face of a lion, face of an ox, face of an eagle. And the early church fathers took the description of the cherubim and said that it was also a representation of the four gospels. That these angels, these angelic creatures, these cherubim that had these four different faces represent the four faces, if you will, of the Gospels. That Matthew presents this majestic side of who Jesus is as, as king. And so, he is, so the early church fathers said that the face of a lion portrays the Gospel of Matthew. When you get to Mark... He, Jesus is represented more like a servant, so he's like an ox. When we get to the Gospel of Luke, uh, Jesus is known most as the Son of Man, and so in that Gospel, there's a picture of a man, and then in the Gospel of John, he's considered the Son of God, and so he's portrayed as an eagle. So these four Gospels, the early church fathers took the four faces of the cherubim and said, in some ways, perhaps the cherubim reflect the gospel record. And so when we come here to the gospel of Mark, we're looking at Jesus portrayed primarily as a servant. He's portrayed as a servant. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, calls Mark my son in the faith. So Peter was probably like a mentor to Mark. And uh, it is believed that the Holy Spirit used Peter as an eyewitness of the counts of Jesus' ministry to help Mark write this gospel. Now, why would Peter be needed to help Mark write the gospel? Why wasn't Mark an eyewitness? And again, it's by inspiration of the Spirit. So even if Peter was an instrument, he's still an instrument by the Spirit. Well, the answer is because Mark was not one of the 12 apostles. Don't get confused and think that that, uh, Mark uh, was one of Jesus' original 12 apostles. He was not. He was probably about 12 years of age at the time of Jesus' crucifixion. 
And he may have referenced himself in a veiled way in his own gospel in Mark 14 when he wrote this in verses 51 and 52. The scene is when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and we find this interesting note that is only in Mark's gospel and it's kind of this side commentary, but it just simply says this, Mark 14, verse 51. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, when they seized Jesus, he fled naked, leaving, or they did seize Mark in, in an attempt to arrest everybody around Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. So he inserts this little, perhaps, this little autobiographical moment here in his own gospel and letting us know that he fled naked. Thanks, thanks Mark. We really needed to know that. But uh, anyway, he, he, inter- he uh, interjects that. Um, he is also, as I mentioned earlier, known as John Mark. The Bible tells us in Colossians 4.10 that he is a relative of Barnabas. And it tells us in Acts 15 that he was actually a traveling companion for a short period of time with Paul and Barnabas on one of their missionary journeys, but that he will also be a great source of division between those two men. Uh, Paul and Barnabas are going to get in a fight over John Mark because apparently John Mark bails Perhaps the, in, the intensity of this missionary journey is too much for, for this guy to handle, and so he bails and goes back home, and uh, Paul wants nothing more to do with him, and Paul says that he's a wanny, and, uh, and so he kind of rejects him, and Barnabas, being a relative of his, defends John Mark. In the end, though, in the end of Paul's life in uh, 2 Timothy 4.11, he does ask for uh, Mark to be reunited with him and, uh, and to bring his, his parchments uh, because Paul is in prison. So there seems to be a mending of relationships there, but uh, for a time there is some sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas over John Mark. So that's the background on Mark the Gospel and Mark the Man. Let's take a look here at chapter 1, uh, beginning at verse 1, and it says, The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Notice this, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Circle the word gospel, it just simply means good news. It's a Greek word that means good news. That's why we refer to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as the gospels, the good news of Jesus. And if you'll notice that Mark begins here by saying the beginning of the gospel, there are three beginnings in the Bible specifically outlined in Scripture. One, of course, is Genesis 1-1, where it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But more particularly, it tells us in Colossians chapter 1 that the principal part of the deity who was the one who created was Jesus. Out of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in Colossians 1.15, it says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by Him and for Him. So Genesis 1.1 gives us, in the beginning, showing us Jesus as Creator. In John 1.1, when we get there, it says, In the beginning uh, was the Word and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, a reference that Jesus is God. And then here in Mark's Gospel, 1-1, we see in the beginning where Jesus is revealed as Savior because he is referred to as the Christ, the Son of God. The, the word Christ is a Greek word, Christos, that translates from the Hebrew word Mashiach. It just means anointed one. 
And it is a term of divinity that he is, in fact, the Savior, the Son of God. So Mark starts that right up front. He says, in the beginning, this is the good news of Jesus, who is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. He is the Savior, and he reveals Jesus as the Savior right out of the gate. Now, what Mark omits is the scene of the birth of Jesus. He doesn't talk about that. He leaves those details to Matthew and to Luke. But he doesn't talk about the birth of Jesus and the scene surrounding the birth of Jesus and Bethlehem and and all of that. Mark goes right into his public ministry, and he's going to start here with John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of the Messiah to announce uh, the way of the Lord. Mark is going to write very expeditiously. He is writing with the intent of showing the constant move of Jesus in ministry. In fact, he will use the term, I think in King James it's the word immediately, in the NIV he will use the term at once more than 40 times because Mark is constantly portraying Jesus on the move. Immediately this, at once that, immediately this, at once that. And he shows the constant move of Jesus in ministry. Mark does not spend a whole lot of time talking about the words of Jesus, although he references how much Jesus would teach and preach. Uh, In these first two chapters of Mark alone, there are nine references either to the word preaching or teaching. In first two chapters of Mark, he talks about Jesus teaching, Jesus preaching, but he doesn't really go into great details of the words of Jesus, other than saying he preached a lot and taught a lot. What he is going to focus on is what Jesus did, what Jesus did, how he performed miracles, how he moved about in ministry, how he healed, how he ministered to those who were lost and sick and needy. And so he begins here, right out of the gate, this is the good news of Jesus Christ, the Savior, the Son of God, and he talks here now referring to John the Baptist. Verse 2, it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came baptizing in the desert region, and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, please note this, the word baptizing. Uh, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. It's not the same kind that we practice today. How is it different? Well, because when John would baptize, he would baptize people would come for baptism to acknowledge their need of the Savior and their desire to repent of sin. But Jesus has not even been revealed at this point let alone died on the cross. So these are not people coming forward to put their faith and trust in Jesus and being baptized as an external evidence of that internal decision. That's how we're baptized today. We're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not as a requirement of salvation, but as an act that demonstrates our salvation because we are identifying with Jesus when we go under the water it's like the identification of the burial of Jesus. We come up out of the water as, as in identifying ourselves with the resurrection of Jesus that we too would live a resurrected life for his glory. That's baptism now. And Jesus, at the end of the Gospels, tells us, as we read in, in Matthew's Gospel, go into all nations and, and uh, preach the good news and baptize everybody in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so that's that baptism. This baptism is pre-salvation. This is a baptism of John the Baptist... Thus, why he's referred to as the Baptist, the one who baptizes, not the one who sings hymns and has to worry about what they wear, 
But uh, that was an old Baptist reference. All right. Uh, but, but because he's baptized us. But this is a pre-salvation baptism. This is acknowledging the need for a Savior and that we are sinners. And they would come forward and John would be baptizing here in the desert region, preaching baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 5, the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. So you have to love this guy. He's rugged. He loves the great outdoors. He lives in the great outdoors. He eats the great outdoors, okay? He's got little locust wings hanging out of his beard mixed with honey. It's, you know... He's a a Baptist duck dynasty. That's what he is right there. And uh, and verse 7 says, And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I. Of course, he's referring here to Jesus. The thongs of whose sandals, or King James says the latchet. These are uh, New King James says sandal straps. The thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Interesting, he identifies another kind of baptism, doesn't he? Now he's come baptizing as a baptism of repentance, anticipating Messiah. We are baptized in water, uh, recognizing Messiah who's already come. But then John makes this reference to there's another baptism, and that baptism of the Holy Spirit, which just blesses my heart to know that the first person who ever preached the baptism of the Holy Spirit was a Baptist. These are all Baptist references today, folks. Come on. But listen, this is exactly what Jesus did because Acts chapter 1, verse 9, Jesus, before he ascended into heaven, after he rose from the dead, before he ascended into heaven, Acts 1 Verse 5, rather, he says this, For John, this is Jesus speaking, For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And that's the whole event of Acts and Pentecost and the Holy Spirit coming upon all flesh who believe and receive. And so that's a whole separate baptism we'll get to when we get to the book of Acts. Uh, But verse 9 says this, At that time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Stop and ask yourself, why would would Jesus need to be baptized? If baptism was an indication of your own sinfulness, your recognition of your own sinfulness, and your need of the Savior, why would Jesus need to be baptized? Well, only in this sense. He was not confessing sin. There was no sin in Jesus. He was tempted in every way as we are, the Bible says, yet was without sin. But because his mission was to come to identify with humanity... He was baptized as a way to identify with mankind. Not because he had a personal need, but because he wanted to demonstrate his own identity with sinful man. And so he comes to be baptized. John baptizes him. And verse 10 says, As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, with whom I love, or whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Now, by the way, I don't want to split hairs over, you know, my Presbyterian brothers and sisters who sprinkle baptism. They don't immerse, but we do immerse around here. And I, I don't think, again, it's, it's, it's not a salvation issue to divide over. But when you look at the way it describes Jesus here in the way he was baptized, it talks clearly about how he was, verse 10, coming up out of the water. 
Okay? That is an indication that baptism is to be by immersion. Again, it's not a salvation issue. You know, we don't divide over it, but that's why we practice immersion. Because when you look at some of the wording of how they baptized, it indicates that coming up out of the water means you were submerged or immersed in it. It's pretty hard to to get submerged into a little bowl. So uh, it's the picture of being submerged in water, coming up out of the water. And uh, here comes this voice from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you am I well pleased. And this is a a uh, representation here of a singular God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because you have Jesus being baptized. You have God the Father, whose voice is being heard from heaven. You are my Son, whom I love. With you am I well pleased. And you have the Spirit, verse 10, descending on Jesus like a dove. You have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit right here in this same scene, this baptism scene here. And verse 12 says, At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert 40 days, being tormented by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Now, again, Mark is silent about some of the details that Matthew gave us. Back in Matthew chapter 4, the whole conversation between Jesus and Satan, when Satan came and tempted Jesus, all of that dialogue is preserved in Matthew's gospel. Uh, Mark doesn't talk about the conversation. He just simply says that Jesus went out. He was tempted by Satan. He talks about 40 days, uh, and he was with the wild animals, and that angels attended him. Attended him is that Greek word diakoneo. It's that word we get our English word deacon from that word, just the ministry of the angels towards uh, Jesus. What an incredible scene to have the angels ministering to God himself in the hour of his need there, just to encourage him and to minister to him. Uh, then it says this in verse 14, that after John was put in prison, now John the, baptism, John the Baptist is, is in prison. He was arrested by King Herod, thrown into jail. He will be beheaded by King Herod. Uh, Matthew gives us those details as well. After that, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. So he goes into the region of the Galilee. The Galilee was the principal location of Jesus' ministry for the three and a half years of his public ministry. Capernaum will be the city from which he will do most of his ministry. But there's a triangular area between Capernaum, Chorazine, and Bethsaida, a couple of fishing communities. And that was the area that Jesus did most of his miracles. And they were most accountable for, they witnessed the most that Jesus had in terms of miracles and ministry. Um, He goes to this region of the Galilee. Josephus, the first century Roman historian, says that in this particular time, there were 204 villages in the region of the Galilee. The region of the Galilee was about 60 miles by 30 miles, not talking just about the Sea of Galilee, but the region around that. 204 villages, according to Josephus, and each village had no less than 15,000 people. And when you do the math, that makes the region of the Galilee about 3 million people. Now, it's not that populated today, uh, primarily because Jesus cursed Capernaum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida because they did not believe in him, even though he had performed more miracles there than any other place on the earth. And uh, so no, now those cities are ruins. They're, excavation, they're excavated ruins that people go and visit today. But the city of Tiberias along the western, northwestern side of the Sea of Galilee is the only thriving city around the region of the Galilee today. And today in Tiberias, there are about 41,000 people. But in Jesus' day, about 3 million in all these different villages. 
around the region of the Galilee. And so Jesus went into the Galilee proclaiming the good news, and he says, the time has come. The time has come. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Pastor Gary has been walking us through the book of Mark. More than the other gospel books, Mark seems to have been written in a way that communicates the fast-paced course of Jesus' ministry, helping us realize it was only for a short time. While the book of Matthew focused on proving Jesus as king, Mark focused on Jesus as a servant. Jesus repeatedly displayed his servant's heart through the various miracles he performed, caring for others above himself. Jesus' example of a servant is something that we should be humbled by and should follow in his footsteps by serving others. We'd like to take a step in that direction by serving you in some way. Can we be praying for you? We'd love to know what's on our listeners' hearts. If you're willing to share with us, our email address is prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. We'd love to meet you, too. Come join us this weekend at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg. We're meeting in person as well as online, and you can find all the information you need on our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. While you're there, you'll find additional teachings from this series in Mark and other series. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for tuning in to hear Pastor Gary on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know But still you know You're not